You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm pleased to introduce you to author E. Lockhart. She's the author of We Were Liars, Genuine Fraud, the disreputable history of Frankie Landau Banks and a number of other novels. Her latest book, Family of Liars, is available now. Here today to talk uh, more about her career and uh, that uh, new book is E. Lockhart. Welcome to Uncorking Story, E. Lockhart. Thanks for having me. So I ask uh, everybody the same question uh, as we begin these uh, conversations, which is, uh, uh, tell me, where does your story as an author begin? I think it begins in the back of a theater my father is a playwright named Len Jenkin, and he uh, was a professor of playwriting at NYU, but also a much produced playwright um, in the New York theater scene off Broadway pr primarily and across the country. And so I spent a lot of summers with him. My parents were divorced, um, spend, uh, sitting in the back of the theater and watching productions go up and seeing, you know, the way a show changed when uh, parts of the dialogue were rewritten or the way a show changed with, you know, a change of lighting or costume or pacing. I got to kind of witness these, these uh, plays take shape. And I think that was an incredibly useful education. Yeah, so it's kind of uh, in, in your blood uh, a little bit, right? Being, uh, being a storyteller. Sure. <laughs> Well, when did you start um, writing your own your own stuff? Um, I began writing in third grade. I wrote a lot of fan fiction, I guess you would call it now, but we didn't call <laughs> it that that back then. I wrote imitations of Pippi Longstocking by Astrid Lindgren and uh, The Wolves of Willoughby Chase by Joan Aiken. And uh, then I kind of lost track of, of fiction writing for a while. And really, I would say took it up seriously. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was studying to get a PhD in English literature, and I was very unhappy with uh, this kind of career path that I had gotten myself onto. It had taken tremendous effort to get myself onto that path, and then I didn't want to be on it. So I started writing fiction as a way of, you know, doing something else with my interest in fiction. Yeah. Well, tell me when you going back to third grade when you were writing, uh, you know, quote unquote fan fiction. Um, what, what kind of encouragement, if any, did you get from people you may have been sharing uh, some of your early work with? 
Well, the the best thing that happened was that with my my Pippi Longstocking novel, and it was really long, um, my dad took it very seriously and he typed the whole thing up. And he did it on two sides of a page so that you could fold it and it would be like a book. And we, you know, went to his office at New York, New York University and we used the photocopier on the stealthy and we photocopied, you know, like 50 copies of it and 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 stapled it with like a big special long staple gun that they had there. And then we went to this friend of his. Uh, my sentence structure there was terrible. I don't like it. <laughs> he had a friend who was a silkscreen artist and we went to the silkscreen artist's studio and I designed a cover and we silkscreened 50 covers and we stapled those on. So I had a sort of first published book as far as I was concerned, you know, and we were able to give my story out to, you know, friends and neighbors and teachers and stuff like that. Uh, so that was the first time somebody took my my writing seriously enough to spend some of their time and effort um, on it. And that made a big impression on me. That is such a cool story about your dad. That's a very special moment. I mean, my memories of my dad when I was in third grade was him taking me to the golf course. <laughs> That's about it. Well, that's something. No, it is. It is. My dad never taught me a sporty thing. (laughs) But that's really cool. Now, did you query agents with that fan fiction of uh, Pippi Longstockings or no? Okay. No, that that would have been presumptuous um, (laughs) and illegal. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, much later that I started thinking of it um, in some kind of more, more serious way. Yeah. Well, do, do you still have a copy of that? I do. I do. Very cool. That's something to put up in a a safety deposit box somewhere. Yeah. Um, Well, tell me, so you said you were, you're not really happy on the career path you were on. Uh, You were getting a PhD. Um, What what was your, what was your intention with that to become a professor, a teacher, or, or what was the plan? You know, I think I didn't see really that far. Um, I was a little bit of a I was a little lax in my undergraduate education. I spent a lot of time, you know, taking ballet for credit and and running the campus nightclub. And, um, (laughs) but I was nonetheless, like I really, I had a wonderful class that was all about Charles Dickens and I loved my Dickens class. And I like read every single book and did, I know I wrote a great paper for that class. And I remember doing a presentation that I was really proud of. Um, so that I was, you know, at times like very intellectually engaged, but I was also goofing off a lot and not that focused. And I realized in my year after college that in lots of ways, I just was not as well educated as I wanted to be. And I knew I was good at school and I just applied to go to more school, you know? Um, so I went to Columbia and I was planning to study Victorian literature, which is what I did, but I didn't really know anything about literary theory um, as an undergrad. And when I got to Columbia, it was really the height of uh, vogue for deconstruction and post-colonial theory. And so most of the time was not spent reading Dickens, but spent reading Derrida and um, Foucault and um, Edward Said and people like that. And I 
Oh my goodness. I was in over my head. Um, I think it, that was a very good, it, I wanted a more aggressive education, a more thorough, a more rigorous education. I'm a hundred percent got that, but I'm really not very theory minded. I just wanted to like think about Dickens all day or, or, or the Brontes or Sherlock Holmes or, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I took an amazing class in South African novelists right and that i loved we just read all these all these great writers um but i just couldn't wait to really get out of there it was not a good fit and i realized that what i was going to do and the only thing that columbia thought i should do was get a tenure track job at a research university so um there was kind of no room to be interested in pedagogy, interested in the teaching of writing, interested in maybe teaching high school, interested in any of the other things you might do with such a degree, um, or teaching in a small college, right? None of those were rated at that time. Um, and I think that's shifted in terms of how English departments um, handle the career paths of their, of their students. But um, it was very much what was happening at the time. So I was just looking to like wrench myself off of what felt suddenly like a very narrow path full of Derrida. So it brings me between the, the PhD program and writing your first novel. Um, what, what happened? How did you approach it? Oh, um, I did it during. Oh, you did it during. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell me about that process. Um, what, now, I mean, oh. was this the first like piece of fiction you've written since, you know, third grade or? I mean, it's, it's a fuzzy story. It doesn't make a great, and like I wrote a picture book. I wrote a middle grade novel. I wrote a book of essays. Then I wrote another picture book. Then I wrote a adult novel. And by this time I was out of school and I was supporting myself teaching part-time and all those things were published, but none of them had really any kind of great response, you know? So I was proud of the work that I had done and I was also disappointed in not really having much traction um, in terms of a, a career or long-term relationships with editors. Um, I mean, this is a very unnuanced way of saying it, but that's the gist. And so I was a little bit desperate and confused about what to do next. And my, I wanted to write another novel, but I had one that was going badly and uh, I was really stalled on it and my editor for my fiction had left publishing and wasn't even available to talk to anymore. So I called up my agent and I said, I think I just need to not be teaching, you know, three courses at three different New York City universities all at once. And I and and plus like freelancing for magazines and writing about you know I, very silly things for for glossy women's magazines. Not that they're always silly, but I had silly assignments. I will tell you that. So I said, could you get me a job writing anything? I will ghostwrite Nancy Drew. I will you know ghostwrite a cookbook. I will you know anything that can you know I will anything as long as it's writing. I felt like would further my career in terms of strengthening my skills and my relationships in publishing and kind of keep me in the mix. And she was like, okay, let me look around. And she called me back a week later and said, there's an editor at Random House 
who um, is one of the five people in the world who read your adult novel and she liked it and she's looking for um, young adult um, book proposals and there was a very specific note that they were looking to hit or you know demographic or type of genre thing which was um sisterhood of the traveling pants but edgy mm -hmm. so i was like i can do that and i went out and i got all these books and i from the i went to books of wonder which is a beautiful children's bookstore in manhattan that i had always loved and always gone to and i got um i know i got angus full thongs and full frontal snogging by Louise Renison and I got Gingerbread by Rachel Cohn and I got um, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and I got some uh, novels by um, Meg Cabot who wrote Princess Diaries and All American Girl and um, these books were so smart. Most of them were very, very witty. They were playful um, in terms of their narrative form. They um, sometimes were totally realistic and sometimes had a little bit of magic. Um, I just thought like these were all written by smart writers who were not talking down to their young readers at all. And I was really impressed. And I thought, I think I do have it in me to, you know, write in this space. And I wrote a book proposal. I got a two book deal and that was the launch of my identity as a as a YA writer. And it was a really great stroke of luck for me um, to a, get a two book deal, but also to find a creative space where I was somehow able to be my best self. Yeah. How did how, how do you feel your life changed after after getting that deal and having that that first success? Um, well, I mean, I eventually became a full-time writer and the, you know, the blessing of, of, of being an adjunct college professor is that you can drop one job and keep the other two and then drop the second job and keep one. And, you know, uh, and sometimes you can say, hey, I need an extra class this semester and they'll very often find it for you. You know, so I was able to uh, piece myself together by reducing my teaching and then reducing my magazine writing until I was writing full-time as a fiction writer. Um, and I also got a chance to become part of the young adult literature community. And that was a big life changer because um, those people are fun loving and awesome. I made some really good friends and uh, young adult fiction uh, writers get the chance to connect with teachers and librarians and other advocates for you know youth literacy and there are sort of ways to be useful if you work in this sphere which uh, i don't think is true so much for adult fiction writers um you know there's issues right there's book banning uh which centers mostly around books for teenagers and other young people there's uh, you know there's uh a literacy access and access to information about sexual health and well-being there's um all kinds of opportunities to kind of be of use in thinking about the needs of the audience for whom we write. Yeah. And so it's bigger than just, you know, is my book popular or did people read it or did I get good reviews? It's a different way of going out in the world as a fiction creator. Yeah, I mean, it's so critically important because so many, and I think we're, we're well over the 150 mark on Uncorking a Story now in terms of interviews, but so many authors I talk to, I mean, New York Times bestsellers tell me, 
it, you know, they were influenced by something in their childhood and it's usually a teacher or a librarian. Um, but that's where the, the seed gets planted inside them that, hey, you know, maybe I could be a writer someday or it fuels their love of reading, which then, you know, fuels um, an interest in, in writing. Um, so that, that community aspect to me is really cool. Um, you know, so many of the people who listen to the show are aspiring authors themselves. So I'd love for you just to reflect a little bit more on the importance of community, like having a community of people um, to be around as, uh, as an author. Well, I know a lot of people really thrive in having critique groups or something like that. Um, and that's really never been my way. I'm a little more of a more solitary animal, but I have found it incredibly useful um, in terms of information sharing and mutual career support. So, um, I mean, to be frank, I have friends that I talk about uh, money with. Right. And that is an eye opener. Right. Someone says, oh, I get paid this for such and such a type of book where I get, you know, I get my payout structure this way. And you think, oh, my God. Right. OK, we have similar sales numbers. I'm not getting paid properly. So, you know, um, or I go after X in my contract or how we also talk about how to navigate relationships with editors uh, or publicists, which can be really complicated. Um, and we share resources for that. And we often, you know, support each other's books on social media. And that's like the visible part of that. But that's not really the most important thing by any means. I think the most important thing is having people that you can kind of talk shop with in a weird job that not a lot of people have. And that, you know, my my parent friends and my, you know, friends that I know through my spouse's job and friends that I grew up with, like those people don't understand my job and that's fine. I don't always understand their, you know, job as a cardiologist or whatever, right? We don't have to understand each other's jobs, but, um, but it's really nice to have friends who understand what this job is. And sometimes that has to do with creative conversations but a lot of it also has to do with demystifying what even after all these years is still a mysterious set of stuff that goes on in publishing. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's no MBA program for, uh, for, for that type of thing. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, an MFA program could do it, but even so um, it is a very nuanced uh, sort of career path. Um, but uh, let's let's talk about Family of Liars. Um, tell me a little bit more about this book. I know it's a prequel to uh, a previous book, so just tell me uh, tell me tell me what you can about Family of Liars. Okay, so We Were Liars, if you don't know it, is um, set on a private island off the coast of Massachusetts, and by private island, I mean it's owned by one family, the Sinclair family, and it is an amnesia story and a love story it has um many thriller elements it has a big plot twist and um it came out back in 2014 and then during the years of the pandemic a very strange thing happened to me which was that people began making videos about we were liars on tiktok and these videos, some of them were aesthetics, you know, meaning like they pick some sort of cool song and they collect a whole bunch of images and kind of make a collage that gives you the vibe of the book. Um, and of course, they do this for other books, too, not just mine. Um, and some of them were uh, 
kind of uh, sped up reactions. So they'd show themselves reading part one, part two, part three, part four, and part five. And what they were doing when they hit part five was either weeping hysterically with like snot and mascara running down their faces, or they were like throwing the book across the room and saying like WTF. So it's those second kind of videos that um, I think propelled this book, you know, up to the top of the bestseller list where it's been for a really long time now. So I suddenly had all these readers and, you know, some of my books have been popular and some of them are just not. And um, I felt so lucky to suddenly have this popular book, you know, that was a long, you know, published so long ago. Um, and uh, my publisher asked if I might be interested in writing a follow-up novel. And I really did not think that a sequel to that particular book would be satisfying for my readers or for me to write. And so I had said no uh, a couple times. And then I, you know, kind of long story short, I got an idea to write a prequel set on that same private island off the coast of Massachusetts, you know, a windswept island with two little beaches and a lot of craggy rocks and a number of houses that all belong to this family. And I said it 27 years earlier than the first book. So it's essentially the story of people who are parents in the first book back when they're teenagers in 1987. So it's the story of these three young women who um, spend every summer on this island and are spending yet another summer. And the eldest is 17 and it's her story. And she is just in the process of uh, dealing with a large jaw reconstruction surgery that she had that has changed her appearance um, to be more conventionally good looking. And uh, also with grief over the death of a young sibling. So she's processing a lot and suffering through a codeine addiction as a result of the jaw surgery um, and the grief. And into their lives on this summer come three attractive boys and one girl. Um, they arrive by boat and they basically are guests who don't leave. And they stay all summer and they upend the lives of these teenagers um, in a big way. Um, and you know, it's a thriller. So some very bad things happen. How, how much fun, if, if at all, was it to write about uh, 1987? Kind of take that trip back in time and your DeLorean. Right, that, that was a kick. I mean, everybody is on a private island and barely ever leaves. So there was not a lot of like fun to be had with pop culture, you know, with cars, with uh, clothes, no one's dressing up on this island, right? Correct. But I did um, do a lot of fun research about food. There's a lot of uh, 80s food in there, a lot of sun-dried tomatoes and uh, other things that were popular uh, just then. And um, a little bit of music. Um, I made a playlist. Um, there are some songs in the book, um, but I also made a kind of extended mixtape, we'll call it. Um, but it's a playlist. You can find it on Apple Music or on Spotify um, under Family of Liars. Or if you look up the easiest way to find it, if your listeners are curious, I know a lot of people do love a, a playlist uh, to go with books, is at my blog, which is theboyfriendlist.com. Um, and there's a post near the top that links to the Spotify playlist and to the Apple Music playlist. So I made those and that was super fun and a real trip down memory lane in terms of 
you know, what we were listening to back in 1987. And then um, the last thing was uh, slang. And I usually like to invent my own slang because <laughs> I don't like to date my stories by trying to be like super current. Um, I feel like I probably would get, you know, get it wrong in some ways if I was just trying to mimic the speech of a group of kids, you know, who are so much younger than I. Um, there's nuances of how you use slang that I could get wrong. Um, so I generally just like kind of create a, a an idiolect for my characters um, that, you know, constitutes the set of, of slang and rhythms of speech and uh, catchphrases and stuff that whatever that specific small group of people uses, it could be, you know, a group of kids at a boarding school, or it could be, you know, the kids who are on this private island or whatever it is. I, I, I like to sort of self-create that uh, verbal landscape. Um, but for Family of Liars, I did do some research into 80s slang and, uh, you know, kind of layered some lovely uh, old phrases in there. And that yeah. Yeah, you got to be careful with the 80s slang because it wasn't necessarily politically correct. I was, I was having lunch the other day with somebody and we said, you know, the words we used to say in the 80s um, were, I mean, just they just wouldn't fly today, you know, because no, we, we said say, some hey, terrible things and terrible I terrible things. And we didn't mean us. it. You know, we didn't mean it. You know, when we said you're so retarded, like we didn't really mean that. But like looking back, it's like, oh, my gosh. And that's just like but it's rooted. It's rooted in a in a disregard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's just, yeah, but I there's a huge number of of 80s words for for vomit. I feel like we don't have anywhere near so many slang words for vomit as you know, shunder and pearl, uh, pearl uh, exactly. Um, so some of those got in there. Yeah. Well, very cool. Uh, very cool. Um, I have some uh, fun questions for you. We're gonna take a little bit more of a trip down memory lane. Sure. Um, so tell me what. Uh, and I ask these of everybody. I'm always curious how people answer this first one, but. Uh, uh, thinking about you know when you were when you were a child, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? I grew up mostly without a television. Interesting. Interesting. I love the Brady Bunch though. Brady Bunch comes up uh, quite often. I don't know what it is about the Brady Bunch. My wife is a uh, I think she's got a PhD in the Brady Bunch. She could you know cite it chapter and verse almost. What, what did you like about it? I was an only child, so I liked the family and I liked the, my, my parents were, were children of the counterculture. So <laughs> I liked the, you know, the mom, the dad, the dog, the, you know, formal dining room, the, you know, the housekeeper. Yeah. Maybe the housekeeper that like determinedly like middle brow, middle class, uh, safety of the, all of that, you know, that suburban life seemed warm and safe. I think it was a comfort watch. I know we 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 had a television sometimes and sometimes didn't, but um, the year that I was in fifth grade, I was allowed to watch the Brady Bunch at 6 p.m. before dinner. And I watched every day. A story of a lovely lady. Um, uh, let's talk about music then. So thinking about your childhood, what were you listening to? Well, maybe teen, pick teenage years. What were you, uh, what was in your headphones? Um, you act like we had headphones back then. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't see with a transistor radio or anything like that. No, it was on the car radio for the most part. Um, okay. 
Uh, well, uh, I went to see the Violent Femmes when I was oh man, great years band. old, and that that was one of my first concerts. Um, it was definitely the first concert I remember going to without a grown up. I went with friends at an all ages club, and I'd never heard of them, and they were so electric. And I went out and I bought that album, first Violent Femmes album, and that was definitely the soundtrack to my um, my teenage years. Um, but again, I only had the album, right? There were no CDs, and uh, I don't think I even had a cassette player until college. I think I got one to go to college with. So I had to listen to it at home on the record player, um, you know, so that that cramped my style a little bit. So Violent Femmes, anyone else come to mind? Oh, well, I love the Eurythmics. Um, I thought Annie Lennox was just a, like a revelation of... Oh, um, yeah you know, this kind of androgyny, um, you know, definitely female identified androgyny in a way that I thought was very sexy and powerful and surprising. And, and she looked like, she, like nothing could ever hurt her, but then her songs were so heartbreaking and vulnerable and her voice is so vulnerable. So I thought that was an amazing combination. Yeah, she and, and Dave Stewart, oh, that was just a great combination. Yeah, they were. I love them. Um, okay, so how about this? Um, I know you mentioned. Uh, I think I read somewhere in your biography. Um, your your favorite theme park attraction is the haunted mansion. <laughs> well, I have many beloved theme park attractions. I do. I love a theme park, but I like to go on a fictional uh, ride, like anything that's taking me like into some other world, you know, like the Disney Peter Pan ride that takes you to Neverland or or the Haunted Mansion. I mean, the Haunted Mansion does hold up extremely well, I think. But really anything that's gonna take me into a fictional universe, I'm, I find those very thrilling, even if they're cheesy. Yeah, no, I remember um, as a kid, I grew up in South Florida. Um, huh. And as a kid, my, my dad, uh, worked for American Express and he, I, I used to joke, he worked in sales, but he was really like the chief golf officer. Like he was always taking customers to play golf. And there was always a tournament up in Orlando. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, there was a Disney tie-in. So for like three years in a row, we, we got to go to Disney. And this was like not too long after it opened. Like it was still like Epcot wasn't even built yet. Oh, wow. Um, and I remember going on the Haunted Mansion as a kid and just thinking that this is probably one of the coolest things I've ever been on because it wasn't a roller coaster. It was just, it just told a story um, and I loved it. And then, you know, fast forward, I don't know, 30 years, I'm at Disney with my, uh, we have triplets at the time. Um, they were probably six or seven years old. And I, we took them to Disney and um, took them on the Haunted Mansion. My daughter, Grace, almost had a nervous breakdown because she was so scared. <laughs> Oh, I'm like, honey, it's not real. She That was just the preamble where you're kind of going in and, you know, they're doing a little bit more of a backstory. Um, once yeah. she got into the ride, she was fine. But um, I know I still I still love that ride. That and Pirates of the Caribbean, I think, are uh, you know, two yeah. of my Pirates of the Caribbean, I loved. It didn't hold up as well for me on a on a re re ride. Uh, as an adult, I, they've they've changed it, but yeah. also some of it is just like you're like, how did I ever think this was okay? There's like they auction a woman off. At I know some point yeah. and some things like that that 
whatever they're pirates we know they're bad but it it just doesn't i i'd love to see that ride like com maybe completely reinvented like so that it was still pirates of the caribbean but it was um some kind of new more complicated or or i don't know i maybe more from the movies because now they've just sort of slapped little bits of the movie onto it i'm not sure yeah uh, i think i preferred it when you know back in 82 uh, <laughs> before they had johnny depp involved in it you know right. I, like, I, I didn't miss... need to see johnny depp or i wanted to full immersion in like the whole movie world right, yeah. right. anyway um all right so uh how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or you know computer screen depending on how you write um, it's not my favorite, uh, the, you know, the getting started on a project is very often the hardest, hardest part for me, um, is that, you know, sort of ramping up into, uh, understanding what the fictional world is. Um, you know, when you don't quite know how your narrator sounds and when you don't quite know what your world is and, you know, and maybe you don't quite know what your plot is, that is when you know, fiction writing seems very hard, but once I'm in the middle of it, I usually feel like I get carried along by the current to a certain extent. Did you feel like that with Family of Liars, knowing that you kind of had a world created from We Were Liars? Yeah, in that sense, Family of Liars was a much easier thing to write because I, I did know the world and I also knew, I knew the kinds of things that are at stake in this world, right? I knew, where the story world was going to put pressure on my heroine and I knew certain elements that I definitely wanted to include. So the challenge was because people had had a big reaction to We Were Liars um, and either loved it like crazy and read it 15 times or hated it so much they needed to like tell all the world how much they hated it. Um, I knew I needed to create, you know, the same kind of cognitive effect, like a big emotional reaction um, and a feeling of shock. Um, but I needed to do it in a totally different way. Um, and I also needed to use these various elements, like there are fairy tales that are threaded through We Were Liars. I needed to use fairy tales again, but I needed to use them in a way that functions differently, right? So that part of it was very challenging. But coming back to the world and understanding um, the characters and how the world puts pressure on them, you know, you know, that was all easier in a lot of ways than than starting a, a completely new book. Yeah, I mean, just going back to third grade for a second where you were writing, you know, quote unquote fan fiction, did, would you consider, you know, these TikTok stories that, you know, your fans were putting together about We Were Liars, or, could they in a way be fan fiction or no? I, mean, I think some of them are, are book criticism and some of them are, I mean, I wouldn't call them fan fiction because they're not creating new narratives within the world, but they're they're certainly reader responses. I mean, I wrote my dissertation on reader response and reader response can take shape in all kinds of ways, right? It can be reviews, right? Or it can be artistic responses like cartoons or fan art or aesthetics, um, you know, created that show what a text means to that individual reader. You know, um, sometimes there's like, you know, silly limericks people write or, or parody song lyrics or, um, you know, all kinds of things that people do in response. But it, you can like look at those 
and you can do you know a scholarly assessment of what a text meant at a particular moment of reception by looking at those kinds of responses and of course we have many many more now than than we did in the 19th century in terms of you know things that you could research and and record um so i sort of think of them in that context but also i don't you know it would not be a good use of my time to be trolling the internet for people's responses to my books i'm much better off um you know trying to write a new one yeah absolutely and uh last up um thinking about um that little girl who was with her dad photocopying um and binding uh that uh, you know pippi longstocking's tail if you could whisper some words of advice or encouragement into her ear what are some of the things you would tell her well I'll say this, I, I had a creative writing teacher in college who, to, who, who told me that I was a solid B student, so he hadn't bothered to read my work. Um, he'd read stuff of mine earlier in the semester, but at the end of the semester, when I turned in all my rewritten stories, he just didn't read them and didn't comment on them and basically refused to because I was a B student and he knew it, which he told me. And this was very discouraging. And I think that I, was looking for some kind of institutional validation of talent. And I do not think that institutional validation of talent is helpful even to people who get it, particularly. I think that at least in terms of, of creative writing, there's not really a thing that is talent. There's a thing that is storytelling skill and craft, and you can learn it. And um, there's a thing that is, you know, opening up yourself to being emotionally vulnerable once you've learned those skills and trying to write something that is truthful that also taps into your imagination. But those are all skills that you can learn. And um, I don't think I had any particular talent. I had a drive that, you know, you, you could see all the way back to third grade to like try to learn how to do this thing, right? And to, and to, uh, and so I became pretty much a self-taught writer. I, I didn't take any creative writing classes after that, and that was the only one I've ever taken. So I've read a lot of craft books, uh, taught in an MFA program for a while. So I heard lectures um, from my fellow colleagues and learned a tremendous amount there. But for the most part, I'm a self-taught writer. And, uh, and I think that's available to everybody. I don't think I, 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 would, I would tell little me and also you know your listeners who want to be writers that um you know a creative writing program is lovely and a class that you like that you get something out of is great there's nothing wrong with any of that but you know don't let the things that happen in those rooms make you think that you can't do this well that is a great point to end on the book is family of liars the author is e lockhart uh thank you so much for joining me today on uncorking a story a pleasure thank you Oh, actually, before we end, um, any social media or websites we could direct uh, listeners to to learn more about you? Oh, yes. I love hanging out on Instagram where I am at Elockhart Books, um, L-O-C-K-H-A-R-T. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Elockhart. And you can find me on TikTok somewhat terrifyingly um, <laughs> at Elockhart Books as well. Very so. good. Thank you once again for joining me and have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me.
Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. 